Heavenly Father, we thank You, we praise You, Lord. You're such a great and an awesome God. And Lord, as we look this morning at just, Lord, the, the attributes of a, a mature spiritual walk, just some things, Lord, that should be evident in our lives, Lord. May we learn from the instruction of Your Word. And Father God, by just the, the exhortation that You gave, Father God, to to Your people, to Your disciples. And Father, we're Your disciples today. And Lord, may we be exhorted. May our lives be transformed more into Your image. And Lord, we pray again that You would be our teacher, that man would decrease, that Your Spirit would increase, that You would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. If you're new here to Calvary, one of the things we do is we teach verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, right through the Bible. On Wednesday nights, we'll be in Exodus chapter 21 this week. And we started in Matthew 1 on Sundays, and we've just been going right through the Word. So this morning, we're in Luke chapter 17. And just to catch you up real quick, I want to tell you that last week, the title of the message is, What, were you, what Are You Investing In? And Jesus addressed the issue of money and the pursuit of material wealth. It says in verse 16 of chapter 16, No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And again, I want to make it real clear. At Calvary Chapel, we're not interested in your money. We don't, we're not worried about that. Where God guides, God provides. You'll never hear me ask you for anything. Why? Because that's not what it's about. But the reality is that Jesus talked a lot about money because people can get distracted by it big time. We can be such a pursuit for material stuff that we get our eyes off of that which is eternal. And that's what the Lord was really addressing last week when He talked to the Pharisees. The Pharisees were lovers of money, and when the Lord told them that you couldn't serve God and money at the same time, the Pharisees, who were the most religious people of the day, it says that they derided Him. They began to they put their noses up in the air at Jesus, and they, and they mocked Him. Why? Because they were lovers of money. You know, these guys were religious men who used religion to make themselves wealthy. And boy, do we still see that today. Amen? A lot of people, you know, they're, they, they think of this as a way to, to make a buck. And how sad is that? And how heavy will the judgment be for those people be? But you know what? The reality is that the Pharisees were lovers of money. And God rebuked them. And then lastly, we saw the uh, story of Lazarus and the rich man last week. And Lazarus was the one who was a beggar, who was seated by the gates every day, covered with sores. And we know that his life from the world's perspective was a failure. And then you had the rich man who, from the world's perspective, there couldn't be anybody more successful. Living in the palace, had everything the world could want. But we know when their lives ended, they spent eternity in two very different places. The Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, or what would now be known as heaven. And he was in a place of peace and in the presence of Almighty God. But the rich man who trusted in his wealth, trusted in his own ability to somehow be pleasing before God, spent eternity in a place at this time called hell or Hades separated from Almighty God. And the reality is that we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive. Amen? How many of you know you're going to be dead a lot longer than you're alive? Amen? I mean, the reality is life is but a vapor. And how we spend this brief moment will determine how we spend eternity. And we saw that clearly last week in the story of Lazarus and the rich man. So this week, in contrast with the materialistic Pharisees and the rich man, all focused on the physical, we're going to this week look at some of the essentials of having a life that is focused on the eternal. Having a life that's focused not on the things of this world. And there are four things I want to talk to you about that, that are evidences of somebody whose walk with God is maturing. And you know what? These are things that challenged me as I studied it this week. Number one, forgiveness when you're offended. Having a forgiving heart when you're offended. And we're going to see the Lord talk about that. Having faithfulness in serving and ministering to others. Being thankful for what God has already done 
for you. And then lastly, being prepared for His soon and coming return. So let's begin in chapter 17 and verse 1. And we're going to start by looking at having a heart of forgiveness when we've been offended. Verse 1 of chapter 17. Then He said to His disciples, and this is Jesus speaking, It is impossible that no offenses should come, but woe to Him whom they, through whom they do come. Now, you are going to be offended by men. That is a fact. Look what it says here. It's impossible that no offenses should come. We should not be surprised when the world offends us, when the world throws itself on us, when the world invades us, when the world comes upon us. We should not be surprised by that, but the Lord said that we would be offended by the world. And you know what? The more on fire for God you are, the more sold out and set apart for His kingdom you are, the more in love with Him, and the more your eyes are focused on the eternal, the more that people will come and offend you. And so Jesus said that you're going to be offended. Just as the Pharisees derided Jesus and they mocked Him, so too will we be persecuted for our faith in Christ by a lost and dying world. The Bible says, Blessed are you, blessed are you, when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you for My name's sake. For so they did to the prophets who were before you. We shouldn't be surprised when people deride us because we're Christians. Because we have a relationship with God. Because we have an eternal focus. The world's going to say we're crazy. If we say you can't serve God and mammon, we, we don't get it. We're totally aliens here compared to what the world strives for. And Jesus said it's impossible that these offenses will not come. But then look at the rest of the verse. But he says, but woe to those who offend or cause others to stumble. Verse 2. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. How serious is our Savior about the salvation of his children? You know what? Here's one dad you don't want to cross. Amen? You know, the heavenly, our Heavenly Father loves us so much. The Bible says that His thoughts are constantly on us. He's numbered the hairs of our head. He can't stop thinking about you. That's our God. That's incredible. He loves us so very much. And at the same time, if you were to come and stumble one of His children, God's judgment is going to be heavy. Now, you know what? I'm an imperfect dad. But I'll tell you what. There are very few things. It's hard for me to get angry. I don't get angry very often. But I'll tell you what. It's like probably like all you moms and dads in this room. The one thing that will get you fired up quicker than anything is somebody coming and trying to harm one of your kids. If somebody came and tried to hurt, purposely hurt one of your children, you, man, I'll tell you what, it kicks into a whole other gear, doesn't it? I'll never forget one time I was down, this has been years ago, and I'm taking the youth group to the water slide park, and my family's with me, and little Marky at the time was about three years old. He's nine now, but he was about three, and he's going down the slides, and he did something wrong. He cut in front of some other little kids on the little kiddie slide and went in front of them. And his dad went over and grabbed my, my son by his arm and started shaking him and yelling at him because he had cut in line. Now, my initial response was, destroy. You know, I mean, I start running toward this guy, and it's only by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit, just, you know, quickened my heart to say, you don't overcome evil with evil, you overcome evil with good. And it probably wouldn't be a real good thing if Pastor Dave couldn't bring the youth group back because he's in jail for beating some guy up, you know. That wouldn't be good. You know, where's Pastor? Oh, he's down in jail because he pounded on some guy in the kiddie pool. That wouldn't be good. But the reality is that our God loves us and we're His children. And you know what? If somebody is to stumble one of His kids, there's going to be heavy judgment. Now what does this mean, to stumble one of the little ones? The word here for little ones is, is not only children, but those who are new in their faith. 
Those who have a childlike faith, new believers. Back in the beginning of chapter 15, he was talking to tax collectors and these scribes and different people who had come to know God, publicans. And they were new in their faith. And the Lord says, Woe unto those who stumbles one of my children. Woe unto those who will take people away from the truth and give them a lie. The Pharisees criticized Jesus and again, possibly causing some of these new believers to stumble. In Matthew 23, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Those are pretty strong words. Jesus said, you know what? You guys go to and fro looking for one person to convert, and then you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself once you've converted him. You know what the Lord said? Look what it says what, he, what it will happen to those who stumble as children. He said, they will be thrown, they will have a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the sea. A millstone weighs about a ton. Now, if you take a, a, a stone that weighs about a ton and put it around your neck and drop you into the depths of the sea, that's not a good thing, right? I mean, you're going to drown real quick. You're going to drop to the, to the bottom of the sea with great rapidity, right? I mean, you're going down. And God said it would be better for somebody that that happened to him than they were to stumble one of his children. Our God loves us. Our God desires... And you know what this tells me? Is we need to, be, we need to make sure... Especially those of us who teach the Word of God, that we are truly teaching the Word of God, not the opinions of men. That we would not stumble people in their walk, but we would exhort and encourage and equip people in their walk. Because there's heavy accountability that comes to those who seek to minister. You know, it's interesting, it doesn't sound like Jesus is real meek and mild here, does it? And I want you to know, Jesus, meek is strength under control. But Jesus is not just the meek and mild Savior who came to save us, but He's also the Good Shepherd. And what do shepherds do when wolves come in? What do shepherds do when wolves come in to kill the sheep? They get out a slingshot or a rod or something, they go whoop up on them wolves, right? And you know what? We saw the Lord when they turned his father's house into a house of merchandise. What did Jesus do? He went in with a whip and he whipped up on some folks and he turned the tables over. He said, you're not going to make my father's house a den of thieves. God's heart is broken when people do ungodly things in his name and when people stumble his children. Verse 3. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. If he repents... Forgive him. Now, what if you're the one who's offended, not the offender? The offender is going to have a millstone tied around his neck and dropped to the depths of the sea. But what if you are the one who is offended, not the offender? If you're offended, how should you respond? You know, the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. Again, you don't overcome evil with evil. But look what it says here. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. I think that word rebuke sometimes gets a, a bad name. The word is discipline, but it's not to destroy, but to restore your brother. Rebuke is a frank but gentle reproof. It's coming to somebody in a loving way and exhorting them that they might repent, that they might be restored back to the Lord. It's not getting up on your high horse and being self-righteous and blasting somebody. It's coming one-on-one in a loving and a kind way and exhorting somebody because their walk has fallen away from God. Our goal is not to embarrass or hurt the offender, but to encourage him or her to repent. Look what it says here. Rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Now, as Christians, we are to forgive others as Christ forgave us. How much has Christ forgiven you? Everything. Amen? And so, you're to forgive others as Christ forgave you. Oh, well, you don't understand. You don't know my boss. You don't know how, what a jerk that guy is. Now, you don't understand. You don't know what it's like living next door to my next door neighbor. Well, you don't know what it's like some people in my family, and I'm just not going to forgive. 
Well, the Bible says to forgive others as Christ forgave you. And it doesn't matter, you know, and in Matthew it says 70 times 7. No matter how many times they come back and ask for forgiveness, every single time we are to forgive them because Christ has forgiven us. And if he sins, verse 7, verse 4, excuse me, seven times a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. Rebuke those in love and desire to see them restored. And again, we need to have hearts of forgiveness. So the first essential for a mature Christian walk is forgiveness when we've been offended. If you have a heart of unforgiveness, it is going to stop your walk with God cold. How can God use somebody who's bitter and has a heart of unforgiveness? We need to be, come to a place where we have a forgiving heart and a loving heart and a merciful heart. Just remember how much God has forgiven you. Number two, faithfulness in service. Look at verse 5. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Now it's interesting that right after he says you need to forgive people, they say increase our faith. Because you know what? It takes a great deal of faith to forgive people over and over and over again. Isn't it hard? It's hard sometimes to keep forgiving people. We say, well, they're not sincere. And you know what? That's not your job to judge. Let God do that. If somebody comes and seeks forgiveness, let's forgive them. Let's see restoration. Let's draw them back into the Lord. But they say, increase our faith. Again, the request was genuine. They wanted the faith necessary to have such radical forgiveness they could forgive people no matter what. Verse 6, So the Lord said, If you have faith of a mustard seed, you can say to the mulberry tree, Be pulled up and by, by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, what is faith? You know, faith, this is one of the most misinterpreted words in the Bible. People f- think that faith is somehow, you know, an essence that we have, that we can make God do stuff if we just have enough faith. You know, faith, we, we command God because of our great faith. You know what? He's the author and finisher of our faith. Amen? Our faith originates with Him, not with us. And so the reality is that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's a complete and humble obedience to God's will. It's a readiness to do whatever He wants us to do. It's not this thing that we summon up within us. There are people today who have faith in faith. Faith can only be as strong as the object you place your faith in. Amen? If you put your faith in faith, you're in big trouble. If you put your faith in all my ability, I'm just going to, you know, and, and you know, again, we've talked about this many times, where people just, if we just have enough faith, then God will have to give us what we ask for. You know, that breaks God's heart. People, and we need to pray for those people because they're missing the Lord. They're missing what faith really is. Faith is a way that we have an intimate relationship with God. Faith is a way that we respond in obedience to His will and to His word for our lives. And it says there that what, what can faith do? The power of faith is as unlimited as the power of God. A mustard seed's worth of faith can remove a tree. It can remove a mountain or a heart of bitterness and unforgiveness. It's not the amount of faith. It's the object that we have our faith in. That's, that's what it is. So obviously, well, we need more faith. No, we just need to have our faith in the right thing. Our faith needs to be in God. Not in your ability to earn money. Not in you know, your education. Not in your anything else, but your faith needs to be in Almighty God. If your faith is in Him, you'll watch Him do great and wondrous things. Verse 7 through 10. And which of you, having a servant, plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper, and gird yourself, and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? 
Does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all the things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. If we serve and obey our Master, Almighty God, we've only done our duty and we should regard it as a privilege. Remember that we are servants. He's saying, look, when you have faith, you must remember to have faith that you are a servant. Faith does not make us Lord. Faith makes us a better servant. People try to use faith to make themselves Lord. They try to have faith that they might be served, that they might get stuff, that they might have more material possessions. Faith does not create lordship in us. It creates a heart of a servant within us. Amen? So the more faith we have, the greater servants we will become. And when we serve the Lord, we won't be looking for accolades. It says here, you know, when the servant comes in, does the master come in and say, here, you sit down and let me serve you? No, it's the opposite. As the servants of God, we are looking to minister to Him, to glorify Him, to bless Him. We're not looking for Him to serve us. But here's the great part. He does serve us. He does minister to us. He came and suffered and died that we might have eternal life. And the point here is that we need to have faith mixed with the heart of a servant. Faith that we might serve more and do more for the kingdom of God. The servant is to first and foremost care for his master. Again, faith and power connected with servanthood, not lordship. Remember the prodigal son two weeks ago, those of you who were here. Remember what happened with the prodigal son? He went into his father. His father is very wealthy. And he said, I want you to give me my stuff right now. I want my inheritance right now. And his father said, fine, son, here, take it. And the prodigal or wasteful son said, give me the goods. He came to the father and said, give me the goods. In rebellion, outside of God's will, he said, give me stuff. He took the stuff, he went out, we know the story. He ended up wasting all of it. He ended up eating pig slop. And that's not a good place for a Jewish boy to be in the pig pen with the pigs, the the most unclean of all animals, eating pig slop. But what happened was that he went from give me the goods, walking in rebellion, to realizing, you know what, my, my dad's servants have it better than I do. I'll go back. Instead of now saying to his father, give me the goods, he said, Father, make me a servant. And that's a picture of our heart toward Almighty God. It shouldn't be God, give me the goods. It should be God, make me a servant. Amen? The goods of this world are all passing away anyway. They're deck chairs in the Titanic, right? It's a sinking ship. It's stuff that won't matter. It's chaff. It's a big pile of dirt. It's stuff that we cannot take with us. I've yet to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You know, nobody takes anything with them. I've done a lot of funerals, and I've yet to see anybody taking any stuff with them. But we live our lives striving for stuff that is perishing and missing out on that which is eternal. The prodigal son said, give me the goods. And the goods were, were, were temporal. And he should have said, Lord, make me a servant. Because when this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Faith for forgiveness, obedience, and a servant's heart, not material wealth. Not increase my faith so I can have more stuff. If I just had more faith, I'd have a Cadillac, right? If I had more faith, I'd have the biggest house on the hill. If I had more... And the Pharisees said, you know, we'll be able to tell who the most righteous people are because they'll be the people with the most money. Yet Jesus had no place to lay his head. And there's nobody more righteous than him. Amen? And the world says, oh yeah, that, you know, and that's a lie. The reality is that the more we fall in love with the Lord, the less of this world we will want or need. It's amazing to me how, and I pray that, I can, that God continues to work in my heart, but spiritual maturity, one of the keys to it is how little we need to have to be satisfied. Covetousness is desiring more of, of something that we already have enough of. 
And the more we fall in love with the Lord, the less and less stuff we're going to need. Done by faith in God, not to receive a reward. So number one, have forgiveness when we're offended. And number two, have faithfulness in serving Almighty God. Number three, thankfulness, a fruit of repentance at our Savior's touch. Let's take a look at the story of the ten lepers. And I want to talk to you about this real quick. In Matthew 8, Jesus had cleansed the leper. And how many of you remember that story? Great story. Man, I'll tell you what. This is one of my favorite illustrations in the Bible. And you know why? Because I identify of all the sicknesses you see people healed of in the Bible, I identify more personally with the leper than any of the rest of them. You know why? Leprosy was a disease where basically you were a walking dead person. Once you got leprosy, life was over as you knew it. You were isolated from your family. You could no longer worship. Your body literally decayed from the outside in, and pieces of your body would literally fall off. You couldn't come near to other people. When people came by, you had to shout out, unclean, unclean. You were never touched again. Nobody touched you. Nobody hugged you. Nobody showed you love. Why? Because you were just a walking death trap and a walking dead person. Your clothes, anything you touched after it left your body had to be set on fire. Everybody was afraid to be near you. And you know what I love about that story, Matthew 8? Is here is this leprous man. And you can imagine, he took a risk and he went out of the leper colony, which is, was a risk to begin with. And he went out because he had heard about Jesus. And he said, if I can just get near Jesus, if I can just get near Him, I know that He's the answer. And you know what? He came near Jesus. And what I love is the way Jesus healed the leper. He didn't say to him from 150 feet away, You're healed! You know, stay away from me, you got leprosy. You're healed! He didn't do that. What did Jesus do? He went up and he touched the leper and healed him. Remember again, this man may have been, may have been 20 years since the last time he was touched. Nobody's touching the leper, but Jesus came and touched him. And man, I love that. Because you know what? Leprosy is a topology or a picture of sin. Sin destroys us. Sin separates us from our Heavenly Father. Sin isolates us. Sin makes us unclean. But you know what? Jesus Christ wants to touch you. Amen? He wants to touch you and transform you and make you a new creation in Him. And I love that our God loves us that much. Now the word about that healing of that leper had no doubt spread. Can you imagine if somebody came along and found a cure for AIDS? One of the things that I've done, most of you know, I was a youth pastor for many years, and we used to go up to the Tenderloin District and, and do uh, outreaches up there. And, we, and at Thanksgiving time, we would feed a lot of the people that were in the AIDS hotels. And I'll tell you what, it's not a pretty sight. You go into some of these AIDS hotels, people who are dying of AIDS are on their last leg. I mean, they look like they're dead. They really do. Their, their skin is transparent. They have sores all over their bodies. And I mean, it is heavy. And we would go in and pray for them. And pray that, you know, and have an opportunity to share with them about the love of God. Can you imagine if somebody went into one of those AIDS hotels up on the Tenderloin and touched somebody and healed them? How quickly that word might run throughout the Tenderloin district? You think it would be out in 15 minutes? You think everybody in the world would not? Well, you think the lepers don't know about Jesus after what he's done? I mean, you basically have a walking death sentence and someone says, Did you hear? There's one. Jesus, he came and he touched the leper and he was made clean. 
And no doubt these lepers have heard this story. And they know that Jesus is going to be traveling nearby. And let's take a look at leprosy. Again, this most treacherous of all diseases. This disease that isolated, this disease that separated people from God. Look at verse 11. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then he entered a certain village, and there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. Again, here are these lepers. And again, they know that they can't come near. Unclean. And they're standing afar off, and they look out, and they see Jesus. There's our hope. There's what we need to transform our lives. There's the only thing that can change us. You know what? We're walking dead men. We need Jesus desperately. And they, look what it says in verse 13. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. You know what? This is a cry out that we should be crying out ourselves. We should be crying out, Jesus, Master, You know what? He's either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. Amen? He can't just be Savior. He must be Lord. Many people want Him to be Savior. The get out of hell free card in my wallet and live my life the way that I want to. But the reality is, we must call Him Lord. Lord, Master. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Do you think that they might have been shouting pretty loud? There's even an exclamation point in your Bible. You know, if the, if the one is walking by who you know is the only one that can heal you, I have an idea that they were screaming at the top of their lungs. They were desperate for Jesus. Man, that's a good place to be. Desperate for Jesus. They recognized Jesus' authority, even over the deadly disease. They cried out for mercy and recognized that Jesus was their only hope. They had faith that He could heal them. Verse 14. So when He saw them, He said to them, Go show yourselves to the priest. Now, Remember the last leper he touched. But this time he said, I want you to go and show yourselves to the priest. Now why did he tell him that? Let me tell you why. In those days, the only way you could be certified as being cleansed from leprosy is you had to be inspected by the priest. Now it's interesting that who's our great high priest right now? Who is it? It's Jesus. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He makes intercession for us daily. That's why we don't need priests on earth anymore. Amen? You don't need to go to any other man to intercede on your behalf. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we go through Him alone. That's why we can pray driving down the freeway. He's interceding on our behalf. Amen? And so, He is the great high priest. And it's interesting that when they were cleansed of leprosy, a typology of sin, they had to go before the priest and He would look at them and said, You're clean. The same thing will happen to us when we stand before Almighty God on Judgment Day. It will be our great high priest who will come out and inspect us and our sin, and say, you know what? They'll say, he's been made clean. Through my shed blood, she's been made clean. Through my shed blood on the cross. I paid the price. Clean. That's awesome. And so the same thing was true, that they had to go before the priest. Now, it's interesting to me that they weren't cleansed yet. The Lord wanted them to respond in faith to what he told them. He said, go show yourselves to the priest. Now, they could have turned around and said, well, wait a minute. We're covered in leprosy. We We can't even go into the synagogue. They could have made excuses. Or they could have responded to the Word of God. Go show yourselves. Had to respond in faith and obedience to Jesus' command in order to be healed. Healing came only after they headed toward the priest. Look what it says. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. Quite often the Lord will show us something first and then have us respond. But more times than not, He wants us to respond in obedience first and then He'll part the Jordan. Amen? He wants us to put our foot in. He wants us to take a step. And then He'll show us the next one. 
And you know, so often we want to sit back and wait for God to show us the whole plan. But the reality is that God is looking for those who will step out and say, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I know you want to do great things. Help me, Lord, to just step out in faith and respond to you. Remember that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. They responded when they didn't understand. They responded when it didn't make sense. Go see the priest. I'm still covered in leprosy. When I get there, they're going to throw us out. They're going to stone us. They're going to kill us if we get too close. Instead, the Lord said, and they went. Didn't make sense to the world, but they did it anyway. Why? Because Jesus told them. Sometimes God's going to call you to do things that from the world's perspective is going to make no sense. Your friends may think you're crazy. The world may think you've lost it. But the reality is if God tells you, you need to be obedient. Amen? And watch Him work. Because when we respond in obedience, God will do great and wondrous things. Again, we often say, Lord, if you'll heal me, heal me, then I'll start walking. And Jesus said, if you'll start walking, then I'll heal you. It's interesting that He didn't touch him this time. I think it's unique. You'll notice in the Word of God that the Lord heals people in all different ways. Have you ever notice that? There's no pattern. Healing really is a mystery. Some people He heals, some people He doesn't. Some people who are on fire for God don't get healed. Some people who aren't even saved and their life is a total disaster, God heals them anyway. And some people say, oh, well, it's, it's because of your faith that you're healed. That's not true, because here's the reality. The reality is that we're healed, not that we would be glorified, but that He would be glorified. And if He's going to be more glorified in us not being healed, then praise the Lord. Amen? I have friends who are on fire for God, been praying their whole lives, no healing. Some of you know Rick and Kelly Franks, are two daughters have cystic fibrosis. You're not going to meet a more godly family, and their, their girls have this deadly disease. But you know what? If we have an eternal perspective, we realize that physical healing is not the greatest thing that can happen. Amen? The greatest thing that can happen is spiritual healing, a spiritual transformation in our lives, and God using us to reach out to others. But why does He heal in different methods? Let me tell you real quick. The reason He heals in different methods is because He doesn't want us focused on the method, but He wants us focused on the man. Amen? On Jesus Christ. If every time he healed somebody, he did it by touching their eyes, then guess what would happen? You'd have everybody in every healing church in the world, they'd be, all be doing the same thing. If there was a certain river that they went to, they'd all be in that river right now, charging $50,000 for you to go into that river, right? I mean, instead, he doesn't want us focused on the method, but upon the one who does the healing, Almighty God himself. Verse 15. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned with a loud voice, glorified God, and fell down on his face at his feet, giving thanks, and he, and he was a Samaritan. Now it's interesting. Jesus healed all ten lepers, but only one returned to thank him. He heals them all, but only one came back. And you would have expected all of them to come back. They're no longer isolated. They can go home and hug their family. They can be restored to their wives and their kids. You would think that they would run back to the Lord and be excited about what God had done. And instead, they continued on to the priest. But one returned and came back to Jesus and cried out and glorified Him. Nine of them went to the priest. One of them became a priest. What do you mean by that? One of them came and gave an offering to the Lord of His praise and His worship and glorified and magnified His name. You know what? That's where worship ought to originate. If you know that Jesus has touched you and taken you from death into life, shouldn't that give you a heart to worship? Amen? Shouldn't it make you want to cry out and just thank Him and praise Him and glorify His name? Worship is, is out of the overflowing of a man's heart, his mouth speaks. And we've been touched by the Lord. It should transform us and cause us to cry out to Him. I love this, again, that, and I think it's true that we are quick to pray, but not often quick to, to praise. 
We're quick to pray when we're in desperation, but not always quick to praise God when He's answered our prayers. You know, all, the, praise, the praise reports pale in comparison to the prayer requests. And here we see that only one came back and praised the Lord. Only one came back and said, thank you. And it's interesting that he was a Samaritan, because a Samaritan, from the Jews' point of view, were dirty half-breeds. They were half-Jew, half-Gentile, and they didn't think much of them. Verse 17. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten cleansed, but where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. I want you to see this. Be attentive. Made you well. By coming to Jesus, this man received something greater than physical healing. The word made you well literally means saved you. The other people received a physical healing, but he he received spiritual transformation. He went to Jesus. And when he came back and he glorified God, God touched him and transformed his life and he had made him well spiritually. As great as physical healing is, it's meaningless if you're spiritually dead. Amen? All the physical healing in the world. You know what? I would much rather be Lazarus than the rich man. Amen? I would rather be Lazarus sitting at that gate covered head to toe in sores, going to spend eternity with Almighty God, than the rich man who has everything the world has to offer, who right this very second is in hell, separated from Almighty God. Which person would you rather be? And so we see here that one came back, and one got it, and one worshipped. And I think it's interesting that the Lord notices those who thank Him. The ones that came back and thanked Him. You know, it's interesting. It says in Malachi 3.16 that the Lord writes down in the book of remembrance our words of thankfulness. You know, God has a library. I don't know if you knew that. There's one in heaven. You know, the Lamb's Book of Life is there. But He's got, you know, I think about our baby books that we have at home for our kids. You know, the first words they said. And, you know, and I'm, I, you know it's funny because I don't get weepy about a lot of things, but I look at those things, I get kind of weepy. Why? Because I just love my kids so much. And I'm looking at those things, and it's just a remembrance of their first words. It's a remembrance of the first time they said Daddy and got little pictures in there. Man, it just grips your heart. But you know that our Heavenly Father has those kind of books about us. It says that every time we thank Him, it's, it's written down in that book of remembrance. What an awesome thing. He loves when we thank Him. He loves when we praise Him. He loves when we worship Him. He loves it when we call Him Daddy. I've told you many times, it's my, one of my favorite words is Daddy. My kids say, Daddy, oh, I just melt. Because I love them so much. When they were little and they first said, Daddy, oh, it's through. What, the car, how, what do you want? I'll give you anything. Why? Because you just melt you. And those of you guys who are dads, you know what I'm talking about. And those of you who will be, you'll know what I'm talking about. But you know what? He loves it when we say, Abba, Father. When we say Daddy, it blesses Him. And He writes it down in a book of remembrance. It's good to give thanks to the Lord. You know, it says in Romans 1 that an unthankful heart is fertile soil for all kinds of sin. Moving along, number four. Preparedness for our Savior's soon return. Look at verse 20. So we've gone from forgiveness when offended, faithfulness in serving, and thankfulness for our Savior's healing touch. A thankful heart. And lastly, we're going to look at preparedness for our Savior's soon return. Now the Jewish people had an excited atmosphere of expectancy that the Messiah was going to come. Especially at Passover time. They were looking for one who would come and overthrow Rome and give them a bunch of stuff. Some things have never changed. They're looking for stuff. They wanted position. They wanted power. They wanted authority. And they thought that's why the Messiah was going to come. And look what they do. They come to Jesus and they're looking for this new deliverer. And look what they say in verse 20. Now when he had asked by the Pharisees, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said. So they turned to Jesus and said, when will the kingdom come? 
Are you going to come? Are you going to overthrow Rome? When's it going to happen? You're a prophet. When's it going to happen? Look at the next verse. He answered and said to them, The kingdom of God does not come with observation. Nor will I say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God isn't physical and material. It isn't something you'll see. The Pharisees, again, like the nine lepers, were looking for physical, temporal victory over Rome. Missed out on an eternal spiritual deliverance from sin. Look what it says there in verse 21. It says, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. And that word could be better translated. The word is entos, which means among. Jesus is the king. You know what? He says the word, it's among you. The kingdom of God is among you. It's right here by you. It's here. They're asking, when will the kingdom of God come? And he's standing right in front of them. It's Jesus. They're so focused on the physical that they were missing out on spiritual truth. Pharisees, like the nine lepers, again, were looking for the wrong thing. You know, how can you enter the kingdom if you don't know the king? Amen? How can you enter the kingdom of God if the king's standing right in front of you and you're asking about the kingdom of God? They missed him. Having the answer of the Pharisees, Jesus now addresses his disciples. He says, verse 22, Then he said to his disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. There's going to be days coming when you're, you're going to want the Lord to be near you, and you're not going to see Him. Verse 23, And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. There are going to be false prophets who will say Jesus has returned. How many of you ever heard before people tell you that Jesus Christ has already come back? Raise your hand. There are people teaching that Jesus was living in Brooklyn. I'm serious. Oh, Jesus living in Brooklyn. Okay. And Jesus walking around Brooklyn. There are people saying that Jesus lived in India. The Mormons teach that Jesus came back and ministered to the Native Americans. Now, we're going to see from this text that that can't be true. Because when Jesus comes back, everybody's going to know it. Amen? You know, He's not going to come back quietly or silently or sneak, sneak back. When Jesus comes back everyone is going to know it. So when people tell you, oh, Jesus is, oh, you know, and, you know I've, I've actually met a few people claiming to be Jesus down in the mall here in Santa Cruz, right? Oh, yeah, I'm Jesus. Oh, really? I don't think so, right? And, you know, too much heroin, you become Jesus, I guess. But here's the reality. These people need Jesus, amen? And there are people like David Koresh. Didn't he claim, you know that he claimed to be the Son of God? Did you know that? You know that L. Ron Hubbard said that he was God? There are a lot of people walking around. They'll try to proclaim to be Jesus made manifest in the flesh. Guess what? You're not Jesus. Because when he comes back, everyone will know it. Look at verse 24. For as lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. When Jesus comes back, it's going to be like lightning across the sky. No one will need the message. No one will have to say, did you know that Jesus came back? Everyone will know it. Everyone will know it. Again, it's not going to be the, the Jesus of the Mormons. It's not going to be the Jesus of the false prophets. It's not going to be David Koresh coming back. It's not going to be L. Ron Hubbard. It's going to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and everybody's going to know it when he returns. Verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Before Jesus could return to bring his church home, he first had to suffer and die that we might have eternal life. Before Jesus could come back and take us back with him, he first had to die and go to the cross and pay the price that we could not pay. Until Jesus suffered, until he became the perfect, as the perfect Lamb of God, that his blood was shed, as we're going to observe in communion in just a few minutes, until that happened, he could not come back to take his church home. 
We could not enter into heaven unless our sin had been paid for. And our sin could not be paid for unless the perfect Lamb of God took our place as the, as the sacrifice. Before we can return, He must first suffer and die. And again, one of the many times that Jesus told them about His death, but they didn't hear it. Jesus now is going to quickly use two Old Testament events to illustrate the certainty and the suddenness of His coming. How many of you know that Jesus Christ is coming back? How many of you know that church is going to be raptured? How many of you know that nothing else needs to happen for the rapture to take place? He can come back this afternoon. Now, that would be great, by the way. I'm all for that. But here's the thing. Some of us were so physically minded that it would blow our gig if Jesus came back. Oh, but you know, i got some stuff I want to do before the Lord returns. And you know what? I confess to you, there's times when we all can fall into that trap of thinking that way. Well, I want to see my kids grow up. I want to, I want to go to their wedding. I want to, you know, I want to do these, these different things. And then the Lord can come back. You know what? I promise you that this place is such a dung heap compared to heaven that we're not going to be in heaven going, man, I wish I could have spent another year on earth. There's no way. Amen? But before the Lord can come, before He returns, He tells us and gives us some clues of the suddenness of His return. Look at verse 26. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they marveled, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. The first example he gives is the flood. In the days of Noah, people were preoccupied with things of the flesh, with no thoughts for the kingdom of God, no thought of coming judgment. He was building the ark for how long? Bible students, how long? 120 years. Building a boat and it had never rained before. And telling people that water's going to be falling out of the sky. Yeah, okay. All right, Noah. Right? People are walking by. Hey, i got a party to go to. Okay, yeah, keep building your boat. Whatever. And he's building this boat. You've got to remember this thing is three times the size of a football field. This is massive. Right? And he's building it for 120 years and he keeps telling them that rain is going to come and they're going, yeah, right. Those are the same reaction we get today when we tell people that Jesus Christ is coming back. Oh, yeah, okay. Been hearing that for a long time. Yeah, whatever. And here it is, 120 years of him telling them. And you know what they did? They just kept living their lives. No thoughts of judgment. No thoughts of his return. No thoughts of the rain that was going to come. And we know what happened. That when the rain came, only Noah and his family was in the ark. And everybody else perished. People thought Noah was crazy. Preaching about God's coming judgment. Just as today, people will think you're crazy when you talk about the rapture. You know what's interesting to me? A hundred years ago, when people talked about the end times and they talked about the final battle taking place in the Middle East, people said, you guys are nuts. Who in the world would want anything to do with the Middle East? There's nothing there. Well, then Henry Ford came along and made this thing called a car. And guess what cars need to run? Oil. And guess what happened to the Middle East? It became real valuable. Isn't it interesting how God knew that? God knew Henry Ford was going to make cars. And God knew that oil was going to become valuable. Do you know that 60 years ago, there was no Israel? Right? 1948. There was no Israel. And people would say, oh yeah, Israel, okay. There is no Israel. Well, yeah, there is. And God knew that it was coming. And you know what? People who think we're crazy in 100 years of, of people telling people that the Lord's return is soon, you know what? It gets closer and closer every single day. The second one that he talks about is the days of Lot. Look at verse 28. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained down fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day of the Son of Man, when the Son of Man is revealed. 
You know, in the days of Lot, it's a picture of the church. What happened before the fire was brought down on Sodom and Gomorrah? Lot was removed. What's going to happen before God's judgment becomes heavy upon this earth? And if you, you, know, if you want to look and see it in depth, go Monday nights to the Revelation study. You know, hailstones falling out of the sky that weigh 120 pounds that are on fire. Where do you hide from those? Nowhere. Okay? Water getting bitter. I mean, it's going to be hell on earth. But when that happens, when that happens, the church is going to be taken away first. Just as Lot was removed out of Sodom and Gomorrah, then judgment came, so too will the church be removed from the earth in the rapture before God's judgment will come upon the earth. Lot delivered before God's swift judgment. But look how the people lived. They ate, they drank, no thoughts of judgment. Oh, it's never going to come. They didn't believe it. Verse 31. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. If you don't remember, forget, if you don't remember anything I said this morning, remember those three words. Remember Lot's wife. Why was Lot's wife turned into a pillar of salt? Because she turned back and set her eyes on the world. She turned back and set her eyes on stuff. What is it that will make us miss God having our eyes on the world, having our eyes on stuff? If we get our eyes on that, we can't have our eyes on Him. We cannot serve God and mammon at the same time. And Lot's wife missed it because she put her eyes on the world. I've heard it said that, that many Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Their eyes are so focused on heaven that they have no impact on the earth. I think that's noise. I think it's the opposite. I think people are so earthly minded that they're no heavenly good. Amen? They're so focused on their stuff that they forget why we're even here, which is to bring people to the kingdom of God. We're almost done. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Only way to save your life is to lose it for the sake of the gospel. It's the only way you can save it. Verse 34. I tell you that in one night there will be two men, that's actually two people, in one bed. The one will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. One will be taken, the other will be left. Two men will be in the field, and one will be taken, and the other will be left. People will be left behind. God will rapture the church away, and will be snatched away, will be in His glory for seven years, and then judgment will come upon the earth. And we, as believers of Christ, need to be prepared for that day. Amen? Because it could happen this afternoon. And we need to live our lives like today's the last day, our last opportunity to serve Him. Last verse. And they answered and said to Him, Where, Lord? So He said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now what does that mean? A word there for eagle also could be vulture. One vulture overhead doesn't mean much. When you see a bunch of vultures gathered together, you know that there's a corpse there. There's got to be a dead animal. When you see all the vultures gathering around and swarming, you know there's a dead body there. And you know what? One sign of the end times may not be the answer to everything. You might say, okay, well, there's one sign. But when you see all the signs that there are, all gathered together, know that the time is near. Now let me just close with this. In the days of Noah, in the days of Lot, what was it like? Because it says in the end times, when Jesus comes back, it's going to be like the days of Noah, and it's going to be like the days of Lot. What was it like then? There was abounding immorality. They were unequally yoked in relationship. There was rapid homosexuality. It was an amoral society. Man's imagination was continually evil. Violence filled the earth. That's what it was like in the days of Lot and in the days of Noah. Today, what's it like? What's it like? The hierarchy of the Episcopal Church 
recently encouraged homosexual union as a pathway to personal holiness. When President Clinton was busted for adultery, his popularity rating went up, not down. Divorce, adultery, abortion, living in sin, sexually transmitted diseases, all on the rise. What is our entertainment? It's filled with filthy language, adultery, nudity, and violence. In the U.S., legal pornography is now a $5 billion a year industry. Two-thirds of every dollar generated by the Internet is from pornography. 300,000 kids are exploited each year by 265 different kiddie porn magazines, and they are protected by free speech advocates to do that kind of stuff. Days of Noah, the days of Lot. What do we see? It says in days of Noah there's violence. Do we see violence today? Kids are killing kids under school campuses, blowing them away with guns. There's drive-by shootings. There's violent crime, rape, murder, and robbery. Child abductions. I mean, every time you turn around, somebody's going and grabbing somebody's little kid off their front porch. We live in the days of Lot. We live in the days of Noah. And you know what? We need to be ready for Christ's return. What about the fact that Satan is being worshipped? Here's the reality. We live in an amoral society. What does that mean? An immoral society has, knows that there are morals, but chooses to go contrary to them. An amoral society, there are no morals. There aren't any. There is no right. There is no wrong. There is no truth. Question authority. There's nothing that we believe in. And in an amoral society, the only people that get blasted are the people that have morals. And that's where we live. We're living in the days of Noah. We're living in the days of Lot. And we need to be ready for Christ soon return. May we not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. May we have hearts of forgiveness when we've been offended. May we faithfully serve our master in the midst of a faithless generation. May we never take our Savior's touch for granted, but always be thankful. And may we live lives with an eternal perspective prepared for our Savior's return. You know what? Those are the signs of spiritual maturity. It's not, you know, how pious we are, but it's having a heart of forgiveness, having a heart of faithfulness, having a heart of thankfulness for who God is and having hearts prepared for Jesus' return. The worship team will come on up. We're going to get prepared for communion. But before we do, let's pray as they come up. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And I pray, Lord, that as we live in the days of Noah and the days of Lot, in an amoral world, in a world where Your truth is mocked, in a world where people just want to live the way they want to live, when they strive after the flesh, when, when the government protects those who harm our children, when, when, Lord, it's just so debased, Father God, I pray, Lord, that in the midst of that, that we would not be desensitized to sin and become like the world, but, Father God, You would just light a fire in us that we would be salt and light to a world that so desperately needs You. Father, may we have an urgency in our hearts to know that You're coming soon. Lord, we thank You, we praise You, Lord. Just prepare our hearts now for communion. Lord, that we would never take for granted what you did for us on the cross. May we never take it lightly. And we thank you, Lord, that as we live amongst this perverse generation, we thank you, Lord, that you died in our place. You paid the price. Lord, that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. Even though you know us best, you love us most. Lord, we just thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to take communion.